Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Like every year in the 90s, 1991 was a year of incredible change. From the fall of the Soviet Union to the birth of the World Wide Web, it was a roller coaster ride of exciting new paths being forged as we were barreling toward the end of the century. And more and more, we were being exposed to a new type of round the clock news coverage that seemed to permeate our lives like never before. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and as 2020, a most memorable year, comes to a close, History of the 90s is looking back and counting down 10 of the most memorable stories of 1991. In the number 10 spot, the end of the Lebanon hostage crisis. Yesterday afternoon, my captors came in, brought some new clothes, uh, new shoes, my first in seven years, and they hurt my feet, by the way. Uh, And they said that I would be going home today. On December 4, 1991, Hezbollah militants in Lebanon released kidnapped U.S. journalist Terry Anderson after 2,454 days in captivity. I'll do the math for you. That's over six and a half years. 44-year-old Anderson was one of 104 people who were kidnapped at the height of the Lebanese Civil War. Between 1982 and 1992, during what was called the Lebanon Hostage Crisis. Anderson, who was kidnapped in 1985, was the longest held hostage. Before his capture, Anderson had been chief Middle East correspondent for the Associated Press, covering the long-running civil war in Lebanon. On March 16, 1985, he was snatched from a West Beirut street while leaving a tennis court. His captors were Shiite militants looking to oust the United States from Lebanon, They took him to the southern suburbs of the city, where he was held prisoner in an underground dungeon for the next six and a half years, sometimes chained to a wall and blindfolded. During that time, his captors released several videos of Anderson reading from a prepared statement. Once again, this has gone on too long. It can't continue like this. Peg, Madeline, Dad, kiss my daughters for me. Keep your spirits up and I will try to do the same. Beginning in mid-1991, the militants began releasing their hostages as the civil war was coming to an end. Anderson was the last of 18 U.S. hostages to be released. When he returned to the States, Anderson was reunited with his family, including his six-year-old daughter, Suleme, who was born three months after he was kidnapped. She is now in her 30s and is also a journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. In the number nine spot, the arrest of a notorious serial killer. We have also, in addition, through our investigation, determined that the suspect may well have been involved in at least 17 homicides. 17 homicides, which our investigation indicates, some of which may have occurred outside the city of Milwaukee. 
In July 1991, police arrested the man known as the Milwaukee Cannibal Killer. His name wasn't known then, but now it's synonymous with prolific serial killers. The arrest of 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer happened after one of his victims escaped from his apartment, running down a Milwaukee street with a pair of handcuffs dangling from his wrist. The victim, 32-year-old Tracy Edwards, flagged down a police car and told them that Dahmer had tried to kill him. He led them to Dahmer's apartment, where police soon discovered a house of horrors that included dismembered body parts and Polaroid photographs of his dead victims. Dahmer quickly confessed, telling police he had killed 17 men between 1978 and 1991. He usually lured them from shopping malls and bars by offering them money to pose for pictures. His victims were on the fringes of society, making their disappearances less noticeable, which was part of the reason it took so long for Dahmer to get caught. In 1992, Dahmer pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 15 consecutive life terms in jail, but died two years later after a fellow inmate beat him to death. Before his death, Dahmer granted a couple of jailhouse interviews, including this one with Inside Edition reporter Nancy Glass. I had uh, these obsessive uh, desires and and, uh, thoughts wanting to control them, to... uh, I don't know how to put it, uh, possess them permanently. And that's why you killed them. Right, right. Not because I was angry with them, not because I hated them, but because I wanted to keep them with me. Dahmer's case helped bring the pop culture obsession with true crime to a new level. There have been dozens of books and movies about his case, which continues to fascinate true crime junkies. And believe it or not, Dahmer has fans who dedicate entire blogs to the serial killer. And there is, I have to say, a weird phenomenon of people who feel sorry for Dahmer as a tragic figure who was just looking for companionship. That idea was popularized recently by a graphic book called My Friend Dahmer, written by Durf Backdurf, who met the killer in high school. The book was adapted into a 2017 film starring Ross Lynch. At the beginning of 1991, before the world knew about Jeffrey Dahmer, a movie came out that coincidentally had some striking similarities to the case. Quid pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. Not about this case, though. About yourself. Quid pro quo. Yes or no? Yes or no, Clarice. Poor little Catherine is waiting. Silence of the Lambs, the story of Clarice and serial killer Hannibal Lecter, swept the Oscars in 1992, with five awards including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, and Best Actress for Jodie Foster. So what were some of the other big movies in 1991? Well, the number one movie was Terminator 2, Judgment Day. That was followed by Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Home Alone, Silence of the Lambs, and City Slickers. And what were we watching on TV? Well, in 1991, it was all about sitcoms. The top shows were Roseanne, Murphy Brown, Cheers, which won four Emmys that year, including Best Comedy, Home Improvement, and Designing Women. Okay, back to the list. In the number eight spot, a Kennedy goes on trial. I know I'm the one who's been charged, and I'm the one who's on trial. But it's difficult sometimes... 
not to feel in some, that my family's on trial for me, and in some strange way, I'm on trial for my family. And that's really not fair to either of us. In December 1991, the trial of William Kennedy Smith attracted millions of television viewers and laid the groundwork for an era defined by celebrity trials that blurred the lines between news and entertainment. 30-year-old Kennedy Smith, the nephew of U.S. President John F. Kennedy, was accused of sexually assaulting a woman he met in a Florida bar while out with his other famous uncle, Senator Ted Kennedy. The woman told authorities Kennedy Smith attacked her as they walked on a beach near the Kennedy compound. As a member of one of the most famous families in the U.S., Smith's case was big news on its own. But it became a legit media circus when a brand new cable news outlet named Court TV took a gamble and decided to air live gavel-to-gavel coverage of the entire trial. Reporters from around the globe flocked to the Palm Beach Courthouse for the proceedings, which were attended by numerous high-profile Kennedys, including John F. Kennedy Jr., who took his turn showing support for the latest male family member to find himself in hot water. Famed criminal defense lawyer F. Lee Bailey, who would later form part of O.J. Simpson's dream team, provided expert commentary on court TV, which blurred out the accuser's identity with a large dot. Following the trial, the woman chose to identify herself publicly as Patricia Bowman. Taking the stand in his own defense in court, Smith testified he had sex with the woman, but that it was consensual. I understand Patty Bowman has a lot of problems. I am, she talked about her neck. She talked about her child. She talked about her relationship with her family. All of those things make me feel very sorry for Patty Bowman. But that's not the issue here. The issue here is I'm innocent. And how do you defend yourself from somebody who says the word rape over and over again? At the beginning of the trial, Judge Mary Lupo made a controversial decision to bar prosecutors from presenting testimony from three other women who claimed Smith had assaulted them. This may have played a part in Smith's ultimate acquittal on all charges. William Kennedy Smith became a doctor after the trial, specializing in working with victims of landmines, and he's remained largely out of the national spotlight. But in 2004, a Chicago woman who was Smith's assistant at work filed a lawsuit accusing him of sexual assault. A judge later dismissed the suit. Number seven, Magic Johnson stuns the world. Because of uh, the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today. On November 7th, 1991, Irvin Magic Johnson, one of the most popular basketball players of all time, announced at a PAC news conference that he had contracted HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. With his wife Cookie at his side, 32-year-old Magic Johnson told a room full of sports reporters that he was retiring from the Lakers and the NBA effective immediately. Displaying his trademark cheerfulness and positive attitude, Johnson said that he learned only the day before that he was HIV positive. He said he felt fine and he didn't have any symptoms of AIDS, adding he was looking forward to a long life off the court. You know, what you have to do is just 
this is another challenge, another chapter in my life that it's like being your, your back is against the wall. And I think that you just have to come out swinging, and I'm swinging. His doctor said that although Johnson was still healthy, continued athletic competition could harm his immune system. To say the announcement came as a shock is a massive understatement. Remember when we heard that Tom Hanks had COVID? Well, that feeling times a gazillion. In 1991, HIV-AIDS was still largely seen as a disease that affected gay white men and drug users. And it was still considered a death sentence because the life-saving drug therapy that we have today had not yet been discovered. Also, very few celebrities had gone public with an HIV diagnosis, and certainly none with Magic Johnson's level of fame. The impact of Magic's public diagnosis was massive, underscoring the point that anyone can contract HIV and driving home the importance of getting tested. I think sometimes we think, well, only gay people can get it, only uh, it's not going to happen to me, and here I am saying that it can happen to anybody, even me, Magic Johnson, it can happen to In a 1992 autobiography, Magic revealed he got HIV after sleeping with dozens, if not hundreds, of women while on the road with the Lakers in the 80s. Magic Johnson's life and career were far from over, though. He played in the 1992 NBA All-Star Game and on the U.S. Olympic Dream Team that won gold in Barcelona. Magic coached the Lakers for one season in 93-94 and then made a short-lived comeback as a Lakers player in the 95-96 season. Today, the 61-year-old Hall of Famer is a prominent spokesman for AIDS awareness and a very successful businessman with investments in everything from movie theaters to restaurants, and he does have a 4% share of the Los Angeles Lakers. And Magic and Cookie are still married. Speaking of basketball... 1991 marked the beginning of the Chicago Bulls dynasty. That year, the team won its first NBA championship by beating out Magic Johnson's Los Angeles Lakers four games to one. 28-year-old Michael Jordan was named the MVP of the finals. In other sports in 1991, the Minnesota Twins won the World Series, beating out Atlanta Braves four games to three. Twins pitcher Jack Morris was named series MVP after pitching 10 shutout innings in game seven. And on May 25th, 1991, Pittsburgh defeated the Minnesota North Stars 8-0 to capture the first Stanley Cup championship in Penguins history. Pittsburgh star Mario Lemieux was named the Conn Smythe winner as playoff MVP. Number six. Grunge music comes out from underground. On September 10th, 1991, Nirvana released the single Smells Like Teen Spirit, and there was a tectonic shift in the musical landscape. The song was the band's lead-off single off the 1991 album Nevermind, and in just a few short months, it catapulted Nirvana from the underground music scene to superstardom. And along the way, introduced grunge music to the mainstream. Kurt Cobain told Rolling Stone in January 1994 that when he wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit with his band members, he was trying to write the ultimate pop song. He said he was basically trying to rip off the Pixies by using their sense of dynamics, being soft and quiet, and then loud and hard. The title was inspired by Bikini Kill vocalist Kathleen Hanna, who was Cobain's friend and had spray-painted the phrase Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on his wall. 
She was referring to the deodorant called Teen Spirit, but Kurt thought it was the perfect anti-establishment rally cry. Nirvana first performed the song live at a small club in Seattle in April 1991, five months before it was released. The historic moment is captured in a grainy video you can watch on YouTube. Danny Goldberg, Nirvana's former manager and author of the memoir Saving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain, says the chorus of Smells Like Teen Spirit pulls off a tricky balancing act, mocking the culture of mainstream arena rock, while at the same time celebrating the joys of listening to your favorite underground band in a dimly lit club. Ironically, Nirvana's label and management didn't expect Smells Like Teen Spirit to be a hit, They had their money on Come As You Are, which was set for release later in the fall. Smells Like Teen Spirit was released quietly and without significant promotion in the hopes that it would begin building an awareness of the new album among listeners of college and alternative radio. It was accompanied by the iconic video, which was shot at Culver City Studios in California. The fans in that video were all from a gig the band had done two days previously at the Roxy in West Hollywood. They gave out flyers there, inviting everyone to come along for the taping. Their cheerleaders in the video were hired from a local strip club. By November 23, 1991, two months after its release, Smells Like Teen Spirit topped Billboard's Alternative Songs chart. The generation-defining song also peaked at number six on the Hot 100. As for the album Nevermind, The defining record of the grunge movement sold more than 25 million copies worldwide. Not bad, considering the label had really only hoped they'd sell about 50,000 copies. By January 92, Nevermind knocked Michael Jackson's Dangerous out of the top spot on the Billboard 200. Rolling Stone named it the best album of the 90s, and Entertainment Weekly has even called it the 10th best album ever recorded. So what else were we listening to in 1991? Well, a far cry from grunge, the top single was Brian Adams' soaring love ballad, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, from the Robin Hood soundtrack. Mariah Carey's self-titled debut album was the biggest seller in 1991, Yay Mimi, and Natalie Cole cleaned up at the 91 Grammys with the album and song Unforgettable, which was a duet with her long-dead father, Nat King Cole. Best pop vocal at the 91 Grammys went to Michael Bolton for When a Man Loves a Woman, and the best pop female was Bonnie Raitt for Something to Talk About. In the number five spot, Anita Hill versus Clarence Thomas. I have no personal vendetta against Clarence Thomas. I seek only to provide the committee with information which it may regard as relevant. In October 1991, 35-year-old law professor Anita Hill testified at the confirmation hearings for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Speaking in a calm, even tone, she detailed graphic accusations of sexual harassment by Judge Thomas while she was working for him at two government agencies. He spoke about acts that he had seen in pornographic films 
involving such matters as women having sex with animals and films showing group sex or rape scenes. He talked about pornographic materials depicting individuals with large penises or large breasts involved in various sex acts. On several occasions, Thomas told me graphically of his own sexual prowess. The accusations were shocking, and nothing like this had ever been openly discussed in the normally buttoned-up hearing rooms of the United States Senate. No surprise, television viewers were riveted. One of the oddest episodes I remember was an occasion in which Thomas was drinking a Coke in his office. He got up from the table at which we were working, went over to his desk to get the Coke, looked at the can and asked, who has put pubic hair on my Coke? What happened after Hill finished her opening statement was even more shocking. The all-male, all-white Senate Judiciary Committee members grilled Hill about her accusations, forcing her to repeat again and again the most disturbing and embarrassing parts of her testimony. Several Republicans openly tried to discredit her reliability and accused her of erotomania, a mental illness characterized by excessive sexual desire. Even U.S. President-elect Joe Biden, who was then the senator for Delaware and the chairman of the committee, asked Hill to describe the Coke can incident again. Biden has since publicly apologized to Hill for not protecting her from the inappropriate questions of his fellow senators. Judge Thomas, who was then 43 years old, categorically denied the accusations, and he accused the committee of facilitating what he viewed as a racist smear campaign. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a Black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity Blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. In the end, the full Senate voted 52 to 48 to confirm Judge Thomas, who remains a Supreme Court justice today. The impact of Hill's televised testimony would reverberate dramatically across the nation, with lasting consequences that endure to this day. It was the first time that someone had so publicly shared her account of workplace harassment. The hearings so outraged women that a women's movement was ignited in the U.S., resulting in the election of a record number of women in 1992. But still, if you watch the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings in 2018, it would appear that not enough has changed in the intervening years. Again, Kavanaugh's televised hearings captured the public's imagination, with over 20 million people tuning in to hear testimony from Professor Christine Blasey Ford, who told the committee that she'd been sexually assaulted by Kavanaugh as a teen. The all-male panel of Republican senators didn't attack her overtly, Instead, they hired an outside prosecutor to try to pick apart Lossie Ford's credibility live on national television. They refused to subpoena a key witness to the assault or launch the FBI investigation that Ford asked for. And after Kavanaugh angrily refuted the accusations, he was confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. While admittedly there were some pretty big differences between these two cases, it would seem that despite the steps taken forward thanks to the Me Too movement, there is still a long way to go when it comes to the handling of sexual misconduct allegations.
Number four, the Rodney King video. In the early morning hours of March 3, 1991, California Highway Patrol attempted to pull over a speeding Hyundai XL. The driver was 25-year-old Rodney King, who had spent the night drinking and smoking weed while watching basketball with two friends who were also in the car with him. King was on parole, and he didn't want to return to prison, so he tried to outrun the cops. He left the freeway, and the high-speed pursuit continued through residential streets for about 15 minutes— until officers were finally able to corner King's car, forcing him to a stop. What happened next was captured on video by a man who lived in an apartment overlooking the scene. Two dozen LAPD officers swarmed King as he lay on the ground beside his parked car. They watched as four officers tasered, kicked, and hit him 56 times with solid aluminum batons. The recording of the beating helped spark one of the most intense and violent periods of civil unrest in U.S. history, similar to what happened in the summer of 2020 after the videotaped death of George Floyd. Rodney King survived, but he was left with a fractured skull, broken bones in his face and leg, shattered teeth, and permanent brain damage. When the video was made public a week later, TV news stations around the world played the raw footage of King's beating over and over. It stunned the nation and permanently seared the graphic images of the assault in our minds. Four officers were charged in connection with the beating, but nearly a year later, they were found not guilty, despite the videotaped evidence. Fury over this acquittal, stoked by years of racial and economic inequality in the city, spilled over into the streets resulting in five days of rioting in Los Angeles, something we covered in episode 28 of History of the 90s. The videotaped beating of King and the subsequent acquittal of the officers involved ignited a national conversation about racial and economic disparity and police use of force that continues today. Number three, the end of an era. On December 25th, 1991, the USSR anthem played as the Soviet hammer and sickle flag lowered for the last time over the Kremlin. Earlier in the day, Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as president of the Soviet Union, leaving Boris Yeltsin as president of the newly independent Russian state. The once mighty USSR had been born in 1917 after the Great October Revolution. But by December 91, It had been stripped of ideology, dismembered, bankrupt, and hungry. People all over the world watched in amazement at the relatively peaceful transition from former communist monolith into multiple separate nations. Just four days before the flag was lowered, 11 of the former Soviet republics had established the Commonwealth of Independent States, effectively dismembering the USSR. The Soviet Union had fallen largely due to the great number of radical reforms that Mikhail Gorbachev had implemented during his six years as president. Gorbachev introduced two sets of policies that he hoped would help the USSR become a more prosperous, productive nation. The first of those was known as glasnost, or political openness. The second set of reforms was known as perestroika, or economic restructuring. He believed the best way to revive the Soviet economy was to loosen the government's grip on it. 
But the reforms were slow to take hold, and rationing, shortages, and endless queuing for scarce goods seemed to be the only results of Gorbachev's policies. No doubt it might have been possible to avoid many mistakes, to have done much in a better way. But I am sure that sooner or later, our common joint efforts will yield their fruit. Our peoples will live in a prosperous and democratic society. I wish all of you the very best. Within hours of Gorbachev's resignation, Western and other nations began recognition of Russia and the other former republics, including U.S. President George H.W. Bush. The Soviet Union itself is no more. This is a victory for democracy and freedom. I'd like to express on behalf of the American people my gratitude to Mikhail Gorbachev for years of sustained commitment to world peace and for his intellect, vision, and courage. Gorbachev finished speaking at 7.12 p.m. The Soviet flag was lowered at 7.32. Then at 7.45, the Russian flag was hoisted to fly above the illuminated dome of the Council of Ministers building. And the chimes on the Kremlin clock tower rang for several minutes. Boris Yeltsin took control of both Parliament and the KGB, officially marking the end of an era. Number two, Operation Desert Storm. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. On the night of January 16, 1991, a somber President George H.W. Bush went on U.S. television to announce the start of Operation Desert Storm. The airstrikes began after Iraqi President Saddam Hussein had ignored a United Nations deadline to withdraw from the tiny, oil-rich country of Kuwait, which Iraq had occupied in August 1990. Following the opening shots on targets in Kuwait and Baghdad, Iraqi radio broadcast a speech from Hussein, who said, the mother of all battles has begun. He called Bush a hypocritical criminal and vowed to crush the satanic intentions of the White House. The conflict began five months earlier when Iraq invaded Kuwait, which despite its size is one of the world's largest oil producers and exporters. In 1990, Iraq was heavily in debt because of its involvement in the Iran-Iraq War of 1980-88, to and Hussein viewed the annexation of Kuwait as a way out of the country's financial troubles. With so much oil at stake, Western countries were not going to stand by and let Hussein get the upper hand. So coalition forces began preparing for a face-off, positioning troops in the region, with most stationed on the Saudi-Iraq border. The U.S.-led coalition was headed up by General Stormin Norman Schwarzkopf. With dozens of nations, including Canada and Britain, taking part, it was the largest coalition since the Second World War. For its part, the media also began building up in the region with all of the major U.S. networks sending in their top correspondents. When the air offensive began, CNN was the only news organization able to broadcast live from inside Iraq at a hotel in Baghdad. Hello, Atlanta. Atlanta, this is Holloman. I don't know whether you're able to hear me now or not, but I'm going to continue to talk to you as long as I can. The skies of Baghdad have been uh, just uh, filled up with uh, the sounds of gunfire here tonight. 
Um, there's still lights on all over Baghdad, and there are bullets uh, being fired up into the air. You can see tracers along with other bullets going up into the air. We'll attempt to continue speaking with you as long as we can here. This coverage was a milestone in television news. It was the first time a major news event was covered live as it unfolded, which seems hard to believe now. But back then, CNN was the only global 24-7 news channel, and its coverage of the Gulf War reshaped the media landscape. And it helped the struggling new cable channel attract new subscribers. The massive U.S.-led air offensive hit Iraq's air defenses, moving swiftly onto its communications networks, weapons plants, and oil refineries. The coalition effort benefited from the latest military technology, including stealth bombers, cruise missiles, so-called smart bombs with laser guidance systems, and infrared night bombing equipment, while Iraq relied heavily on Cold War-era Scud missiles. Airstrikes were followed by a ground invasion on February 24, 1991, despite widespread fears that Saddam Hussein might deploy chemical weapons. He did not, though, and coalition forces swiftly drove Iraq from Kuwait, advancing into Iraq and reaching a ceasefire within 100 hours. Operation Desert Storm was over in 42 days. During that time, coalition casualties were in the hundreds. Iraqi losses numbered in the tens of thousands. At the end of Operation Desert Storm, a controversial decision allowed Saddam Hussein to remain in power. And the unfinished conflict in the troubled region led to a second Gulf War, known as the Iraq War, that began in 2003. Before we get to the last story, I want to give a shout-out to the top toy of 1991. If you were lucky, you got a Super Nintendo under the Christmas tree. It sold for $200 and came with Super Mario World. The 1991 ad for the game bragged that Mario can now move in, around, and behind objects, and the music will keep you stomping until dawn. They've got a point. It's pretty good. Okay, let's finish up that list with the biggest story of 1991, which didn't really make much news that year. It would take several more years to recognize the importance of what happened on August 6, 1991. On that day, the world was introduced to something that would change every aspect of society in almost every corner of civilization. Do you have a guess? Well, you may not know the man who invented it, but you know what he invented. Let me explain. Tim Berners-Lee introduced us to the World Wide Web, launching the first ever website. Berners-Lee came up with the idea while working at the European Organization for Nuclear Research in the 1980s. He wanted a way that scientists around the world could easily communicate and share their data using the then-obscure platform called the Internet. Something that the U.S. government had already been doing privately since about the 1960s. The difference was Berners-Lee wanted a platform that was open and free for everyone to use. He envisioned a worldwide web of documents connected via hypertext links. 
He originally tried out a few other names, including Information Management, Mine of Information, and Information Mesh, before settling on World Wide Web. Fittingly, the first website he launched was about the World Wide Web project, and it described the web and how to use it. There was no fanfare in the global press when it was launched. In fact, most people around the world didn't even know what the internet was. Instead, the launch was marked by way of a short post from Berners-Lee on an academic news group, which is archived to this day on Google Groups. It reads, The WWW project merges the techniques of information retrieval and hypertext to make an easy but powerful global information system. The project started with the philosophy that much academic information should be freely available to anyone. After the World Wide Web was unveiled, things began developing rapidly. The first image was uploaded in 1992, with Berners-Lee choosing a picture of a French parody rock group, which I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to even try. By 1993, the World Wide Web was available for free for everyone to use and develop, and it wouldn't be long before it became a part of our everyday lives. For his invention, the London-born Berners-Lee was knighted, but he received no financial compensation after refusing to patent the idea. He wanted the web to be open and free, so it would expand and evolve as rapidly as possible. He later said, Had the technology been proprietary and in my total control, it probably would not have taken off. You can't propose that something be a universal space and at the same time keep control of it. Well, take off it did. In 1993, a team at the University of Illinois released Mosaic, the first web browser to become popular with the general public. The next few years saw the launch of Yahoo in 1994, Amazon and eBay in 95, and Google in 98. By the time Facebook debuted in 2004, there were more than 51 million websites. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that Tim Berners-Lee is probably the most important person you've never heard of. But he is still around. Every year on the anniversary of the launch, he releases an open letter to the public. This year's letter warned that the web is not working for all members of society, especially women and girls. He wrote that women of color and those from the LGBTQ and other marginalized communities still face acute discrimination. Berners-Lee urged those who shape technology from CEOs to academics, engineers and public officials to tackle online harms against women as a priority. In previous years, he's called for global efforts to tackle state-sponsored hacking, criminal behavior and abusive language on the internet. And he's spoken out about the concentration of power among dominant platforms. So that is a wrap on 1991 and a wrap on 2020 for us here at History of the 90s. We'd like to thank you all for your continued support of the show. We really do have the best listeners out there. And as we get ready for 2021, we are going to take a little break. Our next show will air on January 20th. Until then, if you're a new listener, you might want to go back and check out some of our older episodes. As always, you can find the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And if you miss me until our next show, 
Feel free to reach out on Twitter. You can reach me at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. You can email me directly at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. This episode was written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Dila Velasquez is our producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 